You're listening to From the Burgundy Chairs, a podcast for health system leaders created by Santis Health. Hi, everyone. My name is Ross Wallace, and I'm a principal here at Santis Health. Today, I'm joined by Bernard Lord to demystify the private delivery of publicly funded healthcare services and to talk about why new solutions and new approaches are required to deal with an expanding array of complex healthcare challenges. Before we get started, I want to introduce our guest. Bernard Lord is chair of the board of directors of the Canadian Life and Health Insurance Association, or CLIA, and CEO of Medivy, a health solutions partner. In his role at Medivy, Bernard provides strategic leadership to further the organization's mission to improve the well-being of Canadians. Previously, Bernard spent eight years on the board of Medivy, and throughout his career, he served on multiple boards and been involved in various philanthropic endeavors. Bernard also served as Premier of New Brunswick for seven years. Bernard, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here, Ross. Thank you for having me. Bernard, this is actually the second time you and I have had the pleasure of chatting about some of these same subjects. Um, and as I reflect back to the first time we were together, I should start by saying welcome, uh, but also welcome back. We uh, we last chatted towards the end of 2021. And, and at that time, Canada was still very much in, in sort of the darkest days of COVID-19. And so our conversation was rooted in policy solutions that um, would support and enable greater flexibility within and ultimately across healthcare systems. And during that conversation, I asked you what you'd like to see in two years' time when it came to stronger, more resilient, and more collaborative health systems. And you gave me a really important answer. And so I'm going to bring it back to you verbatim if I can. You said, you know, I'm looking for signs that we are designing a system that meets the needs of patients, of the families, and of the people who need care, and a system that's going to force us to change how we invest and develop the system itself and, and the instruments and programs around it. So we're two years later. Um, have you seen? progress towards this vision? Are you, are you seeing signs of optimism? And if so, can you sort of lay those out for us? I'm, I have seen signs of progress and I see um, certainly a willingness to do things differently, not only from those that uh, decide policies or governments, but other organizations and groups that are actively involved in healthcare as well. But I would also add that patients, families, voters, if you will, are willing and to embrace and are looking for new solutions. And, and we have seen some, some change and there, there's some very practical things. And, and when we have these type of conversations about how we improve the well-being of Canadians, how do we make sure that we can provide the right care at the right time by the right provider at a cost that we can all afford? And of course, we want quality care. I think it's important to realize those solutions won't come just from one item. It, you know, it's not the the proverbial silver bullet that will fix everything. It's, it's several things. It's hundreds, if not thousands of innovations and changes and improvements that will be required over the next months, years, maybe even decade to work through what we, we know is coming. This uh, pandemic, uh, sorry, not pandemic, this tsunami of, of an aging population and increased demand. So when I look at what's, what's happened in recent years, let me give you just a few examples. For instance, in, in Ontario, the government of, of Ontario is brought in legislation to allow pharmacists to prescribe for the, I think was the, the top 13 ailments. They don't need a prescription from a family physician or a physician or a doctor. They can do it themselves. That's just practical. And if you ask Ontarians that have taken advantage of this, they love it. They absolutely love it. So to me, that is one very concrete, very specific example. 
We, we see other examples in, in other provinces, how governments are adapting, as well how the private sector continues to bring in new solutions. And we certainly see it in our Blue Cross um, side of our, our business, where we provide benefits to large employers, small employers, and individuals. And we see an increased demand for um, mental health. And the, the support for mental health has gone up just 13% in the last year. Uh, that's of the people that we cover. So these are very precise examples, very specific. They don't change the world on their own, but they show the willingness of different organizations, people in parties, if you will, in healthcare to make things better. Bernard, those are fantastic examples and important ones. And, and what struck me is that they're examples that aren't about um, enormous swaths of new investment. Um, they're about different kinds of changes around scope, around kind of philosophy, around programmatic changes, less so than about kind of major new investments. Can you talk a little bit perhaps about sort of the relationship between kind of funding and reform? Because I think oftentimes in these conversations, they are linked inextricably together. Um, but I think there's also elements where, you know, the wrong system better funded actually can embed sort of suboptimal ways of working together. And, and so, you know, that, that relationship between, you know, how do we fund the right things how do we do the right things? Uh, and sometimes the right things to be done aren't actually about spending money, but about changing who does what and in what ways and for whom. Absolutely. I think it's it's critical when we look at the future of healthcare in Canada, how do we improve it? Funding is one component, but it is not the only component. And frankly, when we think of where we are in 2023 and we look at the aging population that is coming, you know, the population in Canada, people 65 and older will grow probably between 35 to 40% just in the next 15 years. So, and that's the inflection point. So that, that means people will require more care, more, they'll demand more care, they'll expect more care. As well as it's not just more care of today, it's the more care of the future. There'll be new treatments, new, new diagnostic tools, new medication that are not available today, that may not even exist today, that will be available that Canadians will want. So the funding component is only one component. And frankly, if we're thinking that we just need to fund more of what we're doing today, we will not meet the challenge that is ahead of us. So those examples that I gave you are just examples of where we do things differently. We use different tools to address old problems. And so when we think of some of the, the, the solutions that we will require, yeah, there will be a need for more funding. And the federal government has decided to provide more funding every single year Every single province in Canada for the last decades, virtually without exception, provide more funding from one year to the next for healthcare. So that is required. We will also need to look at human resources. And we know that when we think of the aging population, it's not just the, the patients that are aging, but the providers are also aging. So how do we improve their working conditions? How do we improve their experience so they want to stay and work longer and work differently in some cases. They may not be, they may not want, and they may not be able to work exactly the same when they're in their 60s as they did when they were in 30s and 40s. But how do we change that? And that's not just a question of funding. The same with innovation. And when we think of innovation, often, especially you know, right now, everyone would talk about chat GPT as, as innovation yeah. and the role of AI. Actually, the AI will have a role in healthcare. 
There's no doubt about it. It already has a role in healthcare, but that role will continue to grow. Think of new diagnostic tools that are more precise. Think of new medication. Those are all different types of innovations that are happening and will be required. But another type of innovation is how we think. And when we, we, so changing the way we think of healthcare, and let's not get caught up in, in buzzwords and, and old paradigms that prevent us from looking at the real solutions. And that's why the two examples I, I shared with you are very practical examples. Too often we, we talk about healthcare and, it, and we end up in a debate of philosophy. And frankly, where I'm at right now, and I think where most Canadians are, is put the patient first not the ideology first. Let's find real pragmatic solutions that improve. And they can be small incremental improvements, but when you add them all together, will have a big impact on the wellness, well-being of individuals and, and, and families and organizations. Also, Ross, one thing I want to add is this is not just a government problem. And too often in Canada, when we talk about healthcare, we think, oh, it's up to the government. No, it's not just up to the government. It's up to all of us. It's up to healthcare organizations like Medivy and, and you know, of course, Medivy Blue Cross and so on. And there are others. It's also up to the, the non-for-profit sector. It's also up to individuals to take an active part in their health. And we see that more and more, that people are willing to be, okay, I'm going to take responsibility for my health more than perhaps I did before. And when you think of technology that can be used for that, wearables and so on, help people do that. So how we think has to be part of that innovation framework that we put in place for healthcare. As I'm listening to you talk about innovation, Bernard, it's interesting because, of course, one piece is around what are the innovations we require and how are we going to develop them? And there's obviously lots of folks working on that question, you know, every day as we're having this conversation. Um, but then the question is, once innovations are developed, what's the best way to get them to the people who need them? What's the best way to embed them in the system? What are the sort of the best delivery mechanisms or, or kind of gateways or portals that can connect those innovations with, with sort of system receptors? And, you know, this brings me to the really interesting question of sort of um, public versus private, quote unquote, in, in Canada and in Canadian healthcare. And, and I want to kind of unpack that a little bit because I think you have some thoughts. So obviously, or, or maybe not obviously, um, there seems to still be a very widespread belief across Canada that the healthcare or healthcare systems is both, you know, are both inherently universal and predominantly public. Yep. Um, but of course, as you well know, uh, it, you know, universality um, is, uh, uh, sub there's subjective elements to universality, and certainly private delivery of health services um, has been a cornerstone of Canadian healthcare for a long, long time. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about this misconception, this sense that um, everything's universal, everything's public, uh, and why it's so important to kind of debunk that myth and maybe challenge some of those assumptions so that we can continue that sort of transition from ideology to pragmatism um, and, and maybe sort of mature collectively as we go uh, to really talk about solutions in a much more effective and impactful way. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked these questions, Ross, because these are important questions that we need to address to be able to have a, a, some would say an adult conversation about healthcare in Canada. And, and first we, we need to get away from these, the buzzwords and then realize there are some myths about healthcare. So when you look at healthcare writ large in, in Canada, about 30% is paid privately, it's not paid by government. And even when you look at the delivery of healthcare, a lot of healthcare is delivered by the private sector but some of it is publicly funded. And that's why when we think about what is public, what is private, often the conversation confuses 
who pays versus who delivers. And you can have parts of the system that are publicly funded, privately delivered. Now think of most family physicians, are, they're independent. They work through a system, they, they, they see patients, they submit uh, billings, usually it's, it's fee for service, and they get paid. Some are incorporated, some are not. There's, there's all sorts of structures that are in place. And, but they're, for the most part, they're not employees of the government. Think of all the, the organized, think of all the companies that produce the, the, the equipment that you will find in healthcare, whether it's in hospitals or clinics or anywhere else. Those, you know, the, the MRIs are not produced in a government factory by government workers, at least not in Canada. Most of them are bought from companies that you can buy their stock on the stock exchange. You can decide to invest. They, they're all for profit. And, or most of them, and but they're part of the, the overall system as well. Same thing with drug companies and so on. So we have to distinguish what is publicly paid versus what is privately paid, and then what is publicly delivered versus privately delivered. And we can have, and I think we could have better services in, in Canada in many instances if we have publicly funded and privately delivered care. And because then you, you can make sure there's a clear mandate for the, for the delivery, that there's clear objectives in terms of outcomes, in terms of quality, in terms of patient satisfaction, in terms of quantity. And if, if the, the provider does not meet those requirements that are set by the government or a health authority, depending on, on the province, then there can be penalties in, involved. You don't have that in, in a government setting. You, you don't. And the way the governments are set up, they're just not set up to think that way. They're not set up to, to approach problems that way. And when you, you decentralize some of the delivery, I think you'll get better outcomes. And we, we just, you know, we're coming out of a pandemic. There's still some COVID around and, and the pandemic's not completely over, but we're coming out of the pandemic. And what we've seen in the pandemic is a lot of innovation was created in the private sector. Yeah. And then some of it was funded by the government because they, we needed, they, they, you know, the government realized we need this and they did. And I, I look at some of the things that we, we did. We, we organized, for instance, you know, vaccination clinics. They were paid by the government, organized by Medivy and Medivy Health Services because we had the expertise to do this. Is that wrong? Well, for, you know, some people are, they put ideology first instead of the result. The result was very, very good. We were able to, to provide vaccines to thousands and thousands and thousands of people with virtually no error. And that's, to me, that's the result that we need to look for. The, the other question, the other element you touched on is the, the element of universality. Well, elements of our system are in theory universal. And you would think access to primary care and the Canada Health Act is quite clear on this, that every Canadian should have access to, to medically necessary care without having to pay out of pocket, other than the taxes that they would pay, but that's separate. And I think that's a wonderful ideal to pursue. And that type of universality is part of the Canadian values. And if you ask me, I'm in favor of better access to better care for all Canadians, but it doesn't have to be just through government. And it shouldn't all be organized by government. Now, beyond the theory of it, though, when we look at the reality in Canada, is there are hundreds of thousands of people that don't have a family physician, mm. while others do. Is that equal access? Would you consider that universal access? 
Well, no, it's not access if it's just in theory that you have access to a family physician, while in practice, you don't. Same when if you have to wait for a knee surgery or hip surgery for 18 months or two years, is that real universal access when you have to wait so long? Some people die before they get the surgery that they're waiting for, several people. So is that real access? And again, that's another level of discussion we need to have. What is the difference between the theoretical universality of our system versus what is in practice? And what we've seen in the last 30, 40 years, because everything was in the hands of the government and everything was, uh, that was medically necessary funded by government, it created backlogs. So funding is one component, but I think governments, and we see it now, are willing to open the doors to different ways to deliver care while still being publicly funded to improve the universal access to what is medically necessary. And I think that's a great solution. One thing we need to, to, to discuss, and you didn't raise it, Ross, and Ross, maybe it was part of another question, but I want to raise it before we get too late, is, is when it comes to healthcare, the world map should not be limited to two countries, mm. Canada and the U.S. And often in Canada, when we talk about healthcare, we say we don't want the U.S. system because we, we, we think of the 30, 40 million Americans that basically don't have care unless it's emergency care. Well, there's very few people in Canada. In fact, there's no one that I know that is serious about healthcare that says we need a U.S. style healthcare system. Nobody wants that. I don't want that. But there are other countries in the world and they organize themselves differently. And we could learn from that. We could, we could learn. And, and in fact, there's a great study from the Commonwealth Group that compare health systems in 11 developed countries, including Canada, including the US and, and the UK, Japan, France, and, and some other countries. So they, they use 11 countries. And systematically in their research, the US is 11 out of 11. But systematically, Canada is 10th out of 11. And to me, that means, well, there's things we can learn from the other nine. And how are they organized? How are they structured? And what is better in their system? What's better in ours? And we can adapt. So it's really about taking the Canadian environment with Canadian values and saying, how do we make this better for patients and families in Canada? You know, Bernard, you've had a pretty interesting career trajectory uh, with some fairly diverse kind of perspectives that come from having sat at different sort of sides of, of this collaborative table we're talking about over the course of your career. Um, do you have any thoughts on how sort of innovators and collaborators in the not-for-profit sector, in the private sector, can de-risk uh, these conversations and these collaborations for government? Because I think you know, I'm sure there's moments where um, policymakers are saying, I'd love to do that. I agree with you. I'm aligned. But I don't think I can figure out how to how to carry that forward in a way that's going to be palatable and acceptable and and embeddable um, when it comes to sort of the broader public perspectives. How how can those on the outside sort of help those on the inside? It's a good question. And there's many ways to do that. And, and I one of them is through conversations like these and making sure that we, we have honest, open discussions about those, these solutions and that we demystify for Canadians what will happen when we implement these solutions. There are, there are people that believe they put ideology first. I don't. I, I, you know, I'm quite agnostic in, in that sense. I, I want things that will work for Canadians. And we, we can't just have discussions about you know, the proverbial, how many angels dance on the head of a pin. Hmm is 
there are, how do we open this up? And what I'm seeing recently from conversations I've had with different premiers, health ministers, finance ministers, is there's a willingness from policy makers and, and decision makers to do things differently. As well, we see it from Canadians. Can, I, the pandemic has opened up, I think has opened up our minds and our eyes on this. And more and more Canadians are open to different ways of doing things because what we see is a lot of Canadians are concerned. There's recent polling in Canada in, in different provinces where there were, for instance, in one province, more than half of the citizens of that province were concerned that healthcare would not be available to them or their families when they would need it. And so you think of that, that's, that's, that's big. It's, we're, we've, and at the same time, you ask, are you willing to do things differently? And we see over close to two thirds of Canadians are very open to privately delivered, publicly funded care that is accessible to all, but that is more innovative and more open. So those that have those solutions from the private sector, from the nonprofit sector, have a role to play to make sure that we do a better job explaining what we do. So Canadians mm. say, yeah, that kind of makes sense. And there's a lot of Canadians that realize, yeah, that kind of makes sense. And there's another perfect example of this. Think of remote care, what most people would call telemedicine or virtual care that popped up in Canada during the pandemic. Pre-pandemic was less than 1% of family physician visits in Canada were done remotely or through telemedicine or what most people would call virtual care. The reason I don't like calling it virtual because it's real care. Real care, yeah. It's real care. It's real care delivered remotely. And during the pandemic, it, it went up and it peaked to close to 70, 70%. And since then, it's brought down to about 30, 35%. But 30, 35% is still a whole lot more than 1%. And most patients love it when they use it and, and providers love it as well because it's more efficient. And so this is another very specific example, a simple innovation that has been brought to Canada because of the pandemic. And a lot of that was driven by the private sector. Organ, you know, companies like ours, Medivy Blue Cross, we realized our members wanted this. So we found solutions to do this. Private sectors were organizing and there's different models out there and we brought it and Canadians embraced it. And now there are some provinces that offer this completely writ large, which is good. But you think of this and you say, okay, go back pre-pandemic. There were places in the world where already before the pandemic, there were close to 45 to 50% of visits were done this way. In Canada, it was less than 1%. So we should not wait for the next crisis to bring this type of innovation. And I think we've learned from this that Canadians are ready for change. They're, they're, they, they will embrace the change. They will, they will use it. And if, it, if we don't, if, it, if a company comes in or an organization or government or health authority, whatever, comes up with an innovation that doesn't work, it's not the end of the world. It's okay to try things that don't work. You realize, okay, this one's not working. Let's move on to the next one. But when we open the doors and allow organizations to try things and Canadians embrace it, we realize, oh, look at this. Canadians love virtual care. Let's have more of it, not less of it. And by having more of it, this is better for patients. They're, they have access to care faster. They can do it from their home. It's great for employers because their employees may not miss a day of work. It's great for providers because it gives them another avenue to work with their patients and in a way that is 
sometimes less in, 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 intrusive. So they can do it later at night for patients that want service. So this opens up so many opportunities. This is the type of solution that we need. It's interesting because as I listen to you, it sounds like what we need to figure out collectively is how do we become more kind of comfortable and tolerant of smart, acceptable risk? How do we measure better and faster so we know what's working and what's not? And after we've measured, how do we make changes to either double down on the things that are working or undo the things that are not? But all of all of those uh, are, are kind of elements that it feels like we are still all too often too uncomfortable with. Do you have yes. any thoughts on uh, on any of those pieces or on ways in which we can sort of move those needles in parallel? Yes, and, and I, another way to put it, Ross, would be we, we should aim for progress, not necessarily perfection on everything. Mm -hmm. And because the system we have now is not perfect. It's really good. And, and, and it's had its, its fantastic moments, if you will, but it needs improvement. Yeah. And, and we don't need to wait to have until we have that one solution that makes everything perfect all at once and change then. No, let's do the incremental stuff. And, and as we do that, I, I think we will all gain confidence in our ability to implement change and in our ability to establish partnerships with nonprofit organizations, with private sector and government and so on, and patient groups to bring the innovation that is required. And that, that type of thinking is, is what is needed. And it's, this type of thinking isn't new. It, it exists in healthcare. It exists, in, it exists in other countries. It exists in other sectors. But I go back to something that I said earlier that I think is really important. And that is we need to put the patient first. When we think of what system we need, what services we need, what products we need, start with the patient. And if we start with that rather than thinking of who's going to pay for it, What's the corporate structure? What's yeah. the governance? Who gets to vote on this? No, start with the patient. And then, and, and then close to that is, how do we improve? So the outcome for patient and the experience of the patient, but then how do we improve the experience and the outcome for the providers? Those that are on the front lines, helping the patients. And, and one thing we have in Canada is we have amazing people. We have among the best trained, best educated professionals in the world. And we still have an ability to attract and recruit people from other parts of the world that want to come and work here in healthcare. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. But what we've seen, what we've seen in, in, in during the pandemic, and we're still living this, the, 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 the effects of this, is there, there are health professionals that are just getting burnt out. Not all of them, but some. But the number seems to be growing compared to pre-pandemic. So we, we need to address this uh, as part of the series of solutions is how do we improve the working conditions of the people on the front lines? And how do we make sure that we value and technology is one way. Um, I, I think of our, we have thousands of paramedics that work for, for Medivy and, you know, just having power lifters and, and to, to help them uh, with, with their, the stretchers instead of having to carry everything. So those are things, those are small improvements that we've brought in different places better use of technology as well. Um, you think of AI and the, the impact AI could have for, for radiologists, for instance, that instead of the, radi the radiologists having to go through using technology to go through the, these tests and AI will be able to detect the ones where the radiologist needs to spend more time. And when you think of the, 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 
the fact that we need more people, we may not be able to find all, all those health professionals. Eliminating the unnecessary tasks that can be done by technology will improve their experience and it will improve the outcome for the patient as well. These are all things, and the, you know, there's nothing, there's no big revelation here like this, but it just takes an openness to be willing to do this and to allow non-government partners to help government find these solutions. Bernard, I've heard you talk before about the importance of kind of collaborative health systems. And, you know, clearly uh, Medivy itself across the country provides a constellation of, of healthcare services. And you've alluded to a couple, the Blue Cross piece, the paramedic piece. Um, as you think about sort of the front lines of the services you deliver and the people who are, are kind of Medifee's foot soldiers, are there other examples or, or kind of experience reflections that you want to throw into the mix for the last couple of years? Yes, well, there's a new initiative that we've launched in, in the province of New Brunswick called New Brunswick Health Lake. And our objective here is to help patients that don't have a family physicians. So the unattached patients. And this is a partnership that we've established with the government of New Brunswick. And what we've done with the government of New Brunswick is we, we've called every, uh, every patient. And there's about 10% of the New Brunswick population that was on the list. So 10% of New Brunswickers did not have access to a family physician. We, and so that's about 80,000. And we've called all of them. And we're, I said, we've called, we're in the process of calling all of them. If we have not completed all the calls yet, we're in the process of calling all of them to do two things. One, establish, do they still need a family physician? If no, then they're off the list. That's the easy part. If yes, then we, we, we link them to this uh, health link where they will get access to primary care, but not necessarily just one family physician. So they won't be assigned to one family physician. They'll be assigned to New Brunswick Health Link, which is a collaborative health practice that in, brings in uh, physicians, nurse practitioners, nurses, and other health professionals. And that way, they, the, these 10% of the population will have access to, to care, even though they may not have a family physician. Now, what we're doing as well, so we're recruiting physicians and other health professionals to work, not necessarily full-time. Some There's a few working full-time in this environment. Several are just working part-time. They, they supplement the work they do in their own practices, and they come and work with New Brunswick HealthLink. But what we do is we, we take away some of the, the problems and, and the hassle, if you will. So we they don't need to take care of real estate. They don't take care of HR. They don't take care of billing. They don't take care of scheduling. We do all of that. So we created this environment to be very, very, um, to, to, to use preciously the time that we have of the health professionals to make sure that they are devoted to patients. So we're connecting unattached patients with a group of health professionals. And we're doing this on a provincial scale and provincial wide. So this is another form of innovation and it's, it's working really well. We're still in the first year of this. We're still in deploying uh, the program. But what we see is we have physicians that are approaching us now that older physicians with thousands of patients, some cases, two, three, 4,000 patients, that's their roster. And these older physicians are telling, look, I'm close to retirement. And how could you, how could we transfer the roster of patients? And, and we're trying to build relationship with these, with these physicians. So patients don't find themselves overnight without a family uh, physician, and they can be part of the roster of New Brunswick HealthLink. But at the same time, we're trying to convince 
the the uh, the provider, the physicians, don't retire overnight. Let us take over the patients, and you can work as a physician part time, so you can have a gradual um, retirement, and the patients don't find themselves without a physician overnight. So. That wasn't the intention at first, but because the success of the program, this is becoming an option. And we have physicians knocking on our door saying, we want to help you do this if you take over our patients. So this type of innovation is a change to how we view primary care and how primary care is delivered. So Bernard, as, uh, as we've been chatting, we've, we've covered a lot of ground as we always do. We've talked about um, scope of practice and technology. We've talked about sort of differentiating who pays versus who provides. We've talked about kind of pragmatism uh, versus ideology and why the former matters so much. And as as we get uh, as we evolve in these conversations, maybe we can double down on the on the pragmatic elements and and uh, to maturity that comes with them. Um, and we've talked about collaboration and why it's so important to to think in new ways about uh, the overlay and the alignment of public, private, and not for profit. So, so all of that is fantastic. And and I think at this point, I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot and ask you a version of the conversation I asked last when we were uh, previously in this conversation, which is you know reflecting out one two years. Um, you know, I know you have a sense of the pathway you hope we are on. I know you have a sense of some of the milestones that will mark how far down that pathway we're going and how quickly we're moving. Um, you know, if again, we're fortunate enough to have one of these conversations 18 to 24 months from now, uh, what are you hoping to start by reflecting on in terms of the sort of second arc of progress, uh, just sort of also where we started today? Well, I, I think we're, we, we still have a ways to go and the progress we're on will need more of that progress. Um, but again, I'll come back to something that I, I've said earlier today and that I feel has to be central to anything that we do, which is put the patient first. And by doing that, and by having a willingness to embrace innovation, we will succeed in improving access to care, quality of care, and quantity of care. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping over the next two years, we'll, we'll see more practical um, changes in, in policy and, and regulation to make it easier for other groups that want to help to be able to, to participate. You know, I, I, I look at Ourselves, I, I chair the the um, Canadian Life and Health Insurance Association, and there are several other members. That's what they want. They want to participate. They have ideas. They want to bring in. They 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 want to deliver those solutions. I also chair a group called the International Federation of Health Plans, which is a a group of international companies. Uh, there's companies from, I think, more or less thirty different countries, um, and, and organizations from thirty different countries. And what I see there are solutions and improvements that we can bring to Canada. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that over the next two years, we'll have an even greater open mind to the types of solutions that already exist around the world that we can implement here and have an immediate impact in improving access and quality of care for Canadians. And I'm, I'm an optimist by nature, Ross. Uh, I think I may have said this before, but yeah, some of these challenges are big. But I look at these, this type of this challenge, and this is one of the big challenges of this generation. World peace uh, and, and global warming are probably on top of that list. But you add to that just the, the, the challenge of making sure that we'll be able to provide this aging population access to quality care is a big challenge of this generation. I think we're up to the challenge. And the ideas and solutions 
are there. They're accessible. They're within our, our, our reach. And it's just up to us to, to grasp them and, and bring them to reality. And we're doing that. We're, we're doing our part. Others are doing their part. And I have confidence that we will get over some of the, 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 the barriers um, that we've seen in Canada in the past. And through these conversations, we'll, we will implement solutions. Maybe the idea that we, and I, and I liked how you referenced the conference or the Commonwealth Fund earlier. I mean, I think, I think the notion that we shift away from worrying too much about falling from 10 to 11 and think much more strategically and collaboratively about how we move up the ladder towards one, um, maybe that's the sort of future facing um, sort of shared commitment we can take on uh, led by you and others. Um, yeah, it's, I, I it's, think... I think that's a great way to say let's let's you know we we've talked in Canada about the Olympics let's own the podium let let's own the podium in healthcare let's let's try to be in the top three. I think that's a perfect way to close, Bernard. It's been uh, a pleasure to have this conversation with you today. Thanks for making the time. Thank you for your thoughtful perspectives, uh, and thanks as always for uh, the work you're doing across your multiple dimensions to uh, to push those collaborative systems that you talk so frequently and passionately about. Well, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure, and thank you very much for having me, Ross. Thanks for listening. You can find this episode and more on our website at santashealth.ca and on our Twitter at Santas Health. This has been from the Burgundy Chairs.